bulletin is from the Press Radio Bureau. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Hello, and welcome back to the Frame Lab podcast with Dr. George Lakoff in Gilderan. Hi, George. Hi, Gil. Global warming, climate change, climate crisis, ecological apocalypse, the sixth extinction, whatever you call it, it's the biggest emergency in the history of our species and every species. Yet very few Americans define this deadly global destruction as an urgent concern. It's almost as if it's too big a problem for most people to think about. We see the signs all around us, super blizzards, massive hurricanes, endless wildfires, unprecedented floods, record heat and cold. But oil companies and climate change deniers and Republicans have worked for decades to confuse the public about what's going on. Now it's 2018, and we have a president who doesn't believe in science, and we have oil company cronies running critical government agencies. Our special guest today is David Fenton, uh, the chairman and founder of Fenton Communications and a very good friend of Dr. Lakoff and of me. Hey, David. Hey, nice to be here. Tell us, a, you, David. tell us a little bit about yourself, David. Uh, well, I uh, dropped out of high school at the age of uh, 16 to be a photojournalist of the revolution of the 60s um, and uh, came under the influence of a lot of very creative, talented communicators, in particular a guy named Abby Hoffman, who founded the Youth International Party, the Yippies. Um, and he was very creative and taught me a, a whole lot about the importance of uh, images and theatrics and language and messaging. And he was a, something of a public relations genius. So um, I uh, ran an underground hippie newspaper in Ann Arbor for a few years in the 70s. And then I went to work at Rolling Stone magazine as their director of public relations at a very interesting time in Rolling Stone's history. Then I produced the No Nukes concerts at Madison Square Garden with Bruce Springsteen and a lot of other uh, musicians. And then I thought there should be a communications firm for progressives because there really wasn't at that time. And in 1982, I started Fenton in New York um, to work on the environment, public health, and human rights exclusively, which it still does. Only now there's 60 of them in four cities. So in, in a nutshell, that's me. I'm, I'm a, uh, a media activist. And right now you're mostly working on, on climate. Yes. Um, one of the hazards of spending a lot of time with climate scientists, uh, and I really don't recommend you do that unless you really want to get upset, um, is you learn too much. And uh, when you learn about uh, how imminent and urgent this crisis is, it's really hard to focus on other things. There's a lot of other important issues but if we don't address climate change in a hurry, we're not going to get to solve the other issues. We're on a precipice. And, uh, as, you know, nobody wants to hear this, but it's really true. You know, uh, those of us uh, baby boomers who grew up on Superman comics, remember Superman? <laughs> so remember uh, Superman's father, Jor-El, on the planet Krypton, was trying to warn the populace that the planet was going to explode, and nobody believed him, and nobody did anything about it, and he sent his only son to Earth. So sometimes I feel like that. Um, we're in a crisis, and uh, 
it, it, people really are not paying attention. Um, you know, only 12% of the American public knows that the scientists all agree on climate change. That's it, 12%. And that's not really surprising because the strategy of the fossil fuel industry all these years has been to spread doubt about precisely that. Scientists don't agree. But it's not just that they did that. It's also that we were largely missing in action. We have never had a program to reach the public and teach them the truth about this. Only 20% of Americans are alarmed about climate change. That's kind of pathetic. It's uh, rated last of people's concerns because we haven't explained to them effectively how it affects their primary concerns, their jobs, their families, their health, their livelihoods, their security, their country. So we have a, a pretty massive uh, communications failure that uh, I don't think we've really come to terms with. And George, there are some definite challenges to commuting, communicating with people about a scientific issue like the climate crisis. You've written a lot about those and thought a lot about those challenges. Can you talk uh, for a few minutes about what those are? Well, uh, there's a remarkable challenge in just understanding um, uh, basic facts. Uh, why should uh, global warming create blizzards on the East Coast in winter, bigger blizzards than they had before? Um, you know, you get uh, senator, senator going outside, making a snowball, coming into the Senate and saying, what do you mean global warming? Uh, and uh, President Trump has said the same thing. It's snowing. How could there be global warming? And the reason for this problem is actually fairly deep in two ways. Uh, when you study causation in natural language, what you find is that direct causation, like uh, I pick up a glass of water and I take a drink. That is, that's direct causation. Uh, direct causation is represented in the grammars of every language in the world. But there is systemic causation. We, we function in terms of systems. Our bodies are systems. The economy is a system. Our political system is a system. Uh, and, uh, and an ecological system is a system. And systemic causation is not represented in the grammar of any language in the world. And the reason for this is very clear. Um, language is learned by three-year-olds who you know, know about direct causation, not about systemic causation. And um, the, um, that means that if you ha have to talk about the way a system works to cause something like global warming, like blizzards uh, on the East Coast because of global warming, uh, it's hard to do. Uh, I studied with uh, Dan Kamen here at Berkeley, who's head of Energy and Resources. I'm an honorary member of the Energy and Resources Group. And uh, we did a seminar on uh, what kinds of systemic causation there was. How does the ecological system cause? And we found four causes. And they're not that hard to understand. They're chains of causation. You know, why does it blizzard in the East Coast? Well. You know, you have global warming, you have more evaporation over the oceans, you have trade winds that uh, blow this uh, moisture uh, over the North Pole. In the winter, it's cold and dark over the North Pole. It turns to snow. The, the winds then take carry all the snow down to Washington, D.C., and you get a blizzard. And because of global warming, you have a bigger blizzard than you had before. Now, that's not hard to understand. It's a chain of causes. But there are more complicated ones. Hurricane Sandy was a result of interacting causes. 
Then we have feedback loops. Uh, for example, uh, the polar ice cap, uh, you know, reflects light and heat. And uh, the more that it melts because of global warming, the less light and heat it reflects because it gets smaller and melts. As it melts, you have a feedback because then it, you get more global warming. The more it melts, you get more global warming, and so on. And there are feedback loops like that uh, in systemic causation, very common. The last kind is uh, probabilistic causation. For example, hurricanes forming in the Gulf of Mexico, with some probability, will head toward New Orleans, a different probability toward Tampa. And uh, we know what those probabilities are, and we know we can't tell for any particular hurricane when it's formed where it will go, but we know its probability of going there. And uh, that is a form of uh, system causation because it's in a hurricane system in that part of the world. So you have those four types, uh, chains of causation, interacting causes, feedback loops, and probabilistic causes. That's how this works, and it works that way also in other systems, in the economic system, in various aspects of your body, and so on. Anything that's running by a system is going to have at least those kinds of systemic causes. But because it's not understood, uh, you know, uh, because language is learned <laughs> by three-year-olds, languages only have direct causation in their grammars, and most people think of causation only as direct causation. So David, climate change is the result of some pretty complex systemic changes. How do you communicate those in a really direct way to people? Well, actually, I don't think it's that complex. And I think part of the reason we haven't aroused the public is that um, we've made it too complex. We've made it more complex than it needs to be. And uh, our community tends to like complexity, we don't like simplifying things. We look down on that. Uh, we don't like selling things. We look down on that too. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. I was working with uh, the great uh, climate scientist, Dr. James Hansen, on his TED Talk a few years ago. And uh, Jim said, well, I really want to communicate how way out of balance the Earth's energy system is. There's so much more heat and energy coming into Earth and is able now to go back out to space because of these gases we keep putting up there. And I said, okay, Jim, sounds good. Uh, how bad is it? How out of balance is the Earth? And he said, oh, it's way out of balance. It's uh, out of balance by a quarter of a watt per square meter. I said, Jim, that doesn't sound like very much. He got mad at me. He said, what do you mean? There's a lot of square meters in the earth. I said, Jim, do you think you could come up with a simpler way to uh, visualize and explain this to people? So he took out a calculator and he started playing around. He said, oh, um, the heat we're trapping is the energy equivalent of 450,000 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs going off in the atmosphere every day. I said, bingo, people can get that. So I think that acknowledging all these difficulties and complexities to me the reason we don't have the public talking about this emergency and acting on it is in part because one our community doesn't really reach the public we don't focus on that the community largely talks to the already converted there is really is not a project in any scale to reach the public with simple messages about this issue. And we've learned, George, from your work and your devotee, Donald Trump, that only simple messages work when they are repeated 
over and over and over again. And that's another thing in our community. We don't like repeating things. We get bored too easily. But no one hears you till you've said it to death. So I think we could do a much better job of simplifying these admittedly complex issues for people. Well, and again, as you point out, the scientists themselves, uh, you know, get it wrong. Uh, I was at a conference, uh, you know, uh, at one point when a climate scientist gave a terrific talk and was asked, was uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, caused by global warming? And he said, oh, no, we can never say that any particular, you know, hurricane is caused by global warming because he was, of course, talking about direct causation, not systemic. And scientists are trained to talk about direct causation only. And right. oil companies realized this in in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s. The New York Times did an expose which revealed that um, you know oil affiliated political groups um, had a strategy to confuse the public about climate change by doubting the certainty of the science. So to a certain degree, the Complications around communicating science are ripe for exploitation by corporations and others who would rather not have to deal with the consequences of that. David, in your long experience, what have you seen from the oil companies and from the Republican Party and others who have um, done the opposite of the work you're trying to do in terms of trying to confuse people and delay action? Well, here's something else I learned from Professor Lakoff. Um, our enemies uh, understand how the brain works, and they've had to hone their knowledge of this through having to succeed in marketing and selling products and services in order to keep their job and raise their stock prices and survive. So they innately know that they have to focus on language, message, metaphor, visualization, and most importantly, once they discover which of those languages and visualizations work with the target audience, they guarantee that it reaches them over and over and over and over again. Now, we basically don't do any of that because uh, largely, and again, George, you know, I've heard you talk about this so eloquently, most of the people in the environmental uh, community and the activist community in general, um, we come from the law, we come from the sciences, and we come from the humanities. And innately, we are taught uh, this enlightenment fallacy, that if you present the facts to people in power, they'll make a rational decision, light bulbs will go off in their head, and everything will be great. And it's just not true. It's really never been true, but it's certainly not true now. So there's a huge imbalance happening, which is the people at the oil companies and the coal and gas companies who have this business school and business marketing background, they know to gunk up the works to confuse people. They spend money on it. They focus on it. They're very good at it. And we're basically largely uh, missing from this. Like Dr. Tony Lazarowitz is runs the Yale Project on Climate Change Communications. And, you know, he knows more about public opinion in the United States uh, on climate change than pretty much anybody. And he says flat out, look, there's a, there's a propaganda war going on on this issue, which will affect the survival of humanity. And we are not playing. We are not even on the field. So this is a huge imbalance that I think uh, is very important we all speak out about because we're not going to solve climate change without the public. 
a group of elites in a back room are not going to solve this. So unless we connect to the public and help them understand the nature of this emergency and how it affects them and their families, we will not succeed. The other side does that. So I'll give you an example of this. So if you turn on television in Washington, D.C., all you will see are advertisements about how great fossil fuels are. We're going to be energy independent and have prosperity and jobs, and they even put beautiful women on the commercials, and uh, that's all you see. So if you work in the White House or you're a congressional staffer, you work at a think tank, you're a media booker, you're a journalist in this all-important city, Washington, D.C., fossil fuels are great. That's the only message you will see. You will never see, almost never, any ads from any environmental group saying, oh, by the way, if we use these fossil fuels too much, the National Mall will be underwater, the naval bases at Norfolk will be underwater. This message is missing. We are essentially invisible. So I ask people, how much do you think it costs to buy a 30-second television ad on CNN or Fox News just in Washington, D.C.? One 30-second ad. And most people, when I ask them this, say, oh, $100,000 or $50,000? The answer is it costs $500 to $1,000. So obviously the reason our community doesn't do this hardly at all is not because we can't afford to match the fossil fuel industry in Washington, D.C., the most important media market in the world for this issue. The reason we don't do this is we don't think this way. This is not in the DNA of our community, and that's what I think we need to change. George, a question for you about the different moral systems and how this issue of global warming, of global destruction, you know, of, of catastrophe plays into the strict father and, and nurturant moralities of people. Um, why do conservatives and, and progressives uh, differ on this issue, and where is there uh, room to reach the biconceptuals? Well, uh, progressive thought is based, by, first of all, uh, all thought is mostly unconscious, about 98%. And the idea of the of uh, Cartesian rationality says it's all conscious, hundred percent. Mm -hmm. That's just false. Mm -hmm. And on the universities, unfortunately, as David mentioned, teach uh, uh, progressives who are taking courses in political science, law, public policy, and uh, traditional economics uh, that view from uh, sixteen fifty, from you know, that it's all conscious, it all works by logic, and so on when real reason works by framing and metaphor and um, images and narratives and so on, and where repetition matters, where you don't just say it once and it's over. And, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, progressives do not take courses in neuroscience or cognitive science or, you know, they don't, they don't study how the brain really works. Whereas those, as David said, who, who are conservatives who go to college, take courses in business, and then they take marketing courses and they learn how people really think. And that's why the conservatives are so much better at this. Now, progressives have a, a view that uh, a moral view, which is based on what I call a nurturant parent family, but the idea uh, is that um, you know you're. Let me. You can explain pro progressive thought in two sentences. Um, 
a democracy has a government that is of, by, and for the people, and for the people says it's supposed to take care of the people, and uh, that um, since the beginning of the country, we've had uh, the idea that citizens care about other citizens and work through the government to provide public resources for everybody um, uh, in order for them to be free and to, be, to have well-being. That's, you know, what our Constitution said, and that's what um, uh, the progressive thought has been about. And if you have that thought, you say, okay, uh, nature nurtures us. We need nurture, nature for everything about us, and you don't uh, harm your nurturer. You know, you pre, you know protect nurture nature. You preserve it. Um, you know, you make sure that uh, you know it's not destroyed. Uh, but if you're a conservative, you view something different. You learn what I call a strict father morality, and what that says in a strict father family, the father uh, is the person who has authority. What he says is right, and um, everybody's supposed to just go to what he says. Period. And it follows from that that uh, there's just individual responsibility, not social responsibility, and that uh, winning is nature, that having authority through strength is natural in the world, and therefore you get a kind of moral hierarchy of God above man, that is religion has won out, God, you know, etc., and man above nature, and so on, the rich above the poor, uh, and it goes on. Now, the rich above the poor says that you should have laissez-faire capitalism, that you don't have social responsibility as capitalism, and you have this false doctrine that says that um, uh, in every corporation you have, uh, you know, fiscal responsibility to make as much profit as you can. That is not a law at all. It has to do with, uh, you know, what the corporate the people running the corporation uh, decide. And if I may, the, this is a big part of why conservatives are resistant to accepting this science, because they fear it will mean violating their morality and their beliefs. It will mean massive government intervention in the economy and rationing energy and telling people what to do. So this is another thing we have done a very poor job of in our activist community in reaching conservatives to deal with this. And we have to reach them. We have got to split conservatives on climate change or we will not survive because the odds of the progressives controlling two-thirds of the Congress, the presidency, and the Supreme Court all at once are extremely low in the very few years physics is giving us to solve this problem. So we have to split conservatives. I'm convinced it can be done. There are now some great Republican leaders on climate change for the first time in just the past few years, and they're very good at explaining to fellow libertarians and conservatives how climate change threatens everything they hold dear. It threatens their freedom. It threatens their liberty. It threatens their prosperity. It threatens their health and their families and their country's national security. But those messages don't reach conservatives. The only messages that reach conservatives in their social and mainstream uh, conservative media is that climate change is a liberal hoax. Now, we could do something about that, You can't expect conservatives to come on board if all they are hearing and seeing is it's a hoax. 
But if we helped conservative spokespeople reach conservatives with this coming from members of their own tribe, I think we would quickly advance the day that we have more bipartisan unity on this. But it amazes me there's really no project in existence to do that at any scale. How could that be? Very simple. Uh, way back uh, when I worked with the Rockridge Institute, uh, a progressive think tank, uh, I was called in by um, the Green Group, the leaders of the 35 major environmental organizations, to see if we could find out how the CEOs could agree on a message. And they had me interview all the CEOs. And what I found out was that the CEOs mainly are responsible for raising money in their organizations. For their own organizations. For their own yes, organizations. Right. And the organizations have different different clients, different sources of funding. You know, the rivers get it one way and the forests get it from another place. And the rivers and forests are not getting it uh, of, the, of the same audience. And some of them uh, have Republicans and some of them don't, uh, you know. And, you know, the duck hunters work one way and, um, you know, the Audubon Society works another. It's true. It's very fractured. You know, I like to say, you know, it's not only the Russians that can buy advertising on Facebook to affect American public <laughs> opinion. We could do it, too. And the Russians only spent a million five a month which is cheap but see we again our problem is we don't think this way and by the way look how it's reflected in the budgets of the big foundations and the main environmental groups who again these groups do a lot of great work thank god they're suing trump and pruitt and zinke you know their science their policy work however if you have an environmental group with a budget of 100 million dollars a year Maybe they're spending a half of 1% on that, on actually reaching the public other than to raise money. If you look at the big environmental foundations, mostly what they fund is what I call the supply of policy, reports, studies, science, conferences, meetings, opening offices around the world. And they don't fund demand very much. There are some exceptions, but by and large, the many hundreds of millions of dollars in climate philanthropy every year goes into the supply of policy. And we don't lack a supply of policy. We know what to do. They've succeeded. We have a great supply of policy. We like demand. Well, one of the things you've observed, George, is that while uh, climate activists and, and progressives are calling for everyone to accept the science of climate change, they very often don't accept the science of communication. So there's a bit of a, a gap there between which sciences we embrace and which we don't. I want to change the conversation a little bit here and get down to some of the some some kind of lightning rounds on some questions um, that are often asked and, and often come up here. So we're going to try to stump stump the gurus here. <laughs> uh, there's a debate over even what to call climate change or global warming. Uh, Frank Luntz changed global warming to climate change back during the Bush years because it sounded less threatening, but now the two are basically synonymous. But a, a slogan or name isn't likely to shift this debate. What's necessary in terms of language and framing to get this done? Well, I think you're right. Climate change and, and global warming are interchangeable. The Yale research shows that global warming works a little bit better, but it is pretty interchangeable. I, I disagree, Gil. I think that we do need to come up with uh, slogans that uh, are effective and get everybody using them. You know, right now, this community... Uh, 
everybody talks about this differently, and nobody actually knows what works. So it's the Tower of Babel. And uh, if we could unify people beyond some base, behind some basic messages, I think it would go a long way. Um, you know, I, I once went to a creative friend of mine and said, uh, you know, how, how should we best express that the climate change is caused by humans? And he came up with climate change. It's only human. Now, I'm not saying that's it. I am saying, however, that we should get creative people involved in this and then test their work. And that's not happening. I think that the language of this has to be simplified. You know, if you heat the earth, you're going to melt the ice and swamp the cities. We don't talk that way. We make it so complex, and we don't say the same thing over and over. We also don't use uh, terms like climate disasters. Uh, you know, when you have a flood that is caused because of systemic climate change, when you have a flood, when you have a drought, when you have fires that are, that are systemically caused by this, they're not reported as such. You don't say the uh, global warming fires that just hit, the global warming uh, drought that's, that hit the Midwest, and here's how it worked. Here's how the drought happened. And you, know, and you can expect to see more of them because of can, what we're doing. Exactly. No, and, and this is there's a related problem here, George, that... that uh, is very interesting, which is the mainstream television news networks in this country, uh, they will not say the word global warming or climate change. You will not see it on the NBC, CBS, ABC, nightly or morning news programs, almost never. So no matter how strong the hurricanes get, no matter how many floods, no matter how many droughts, this is missing. And you know the reason for this is very interesting. It's that the people that run those programs are intimidated by the right and the fossil fuel industry. They see it as a partisan issue. And so if they talk about this, because I've talked to the people in the networks about this, that they're going to have the right come down on them like a ton of bricks. Now, we don't come down on them. We have no campaign to pressure them to do a service to the public and tell them what's going on. So you have pressure from only the right, not from us. What do you think is going to be the result of that? The problem with that is... Uh, that it's absence, not presence, that we're talking about. That is, they don't say it, and you can't you know, argue against not saying something. It's the, You can't argue against absence. You can ab argue against presence. And until you argue, can say, look, there is, it's immoral and unprofessional to not say what is true. That is, to leave out the truth when it's crucial. You know, it, it, you know, the law doesn't allow you to, to, to uh, you know, to say, uh, you know, yeah, you, you, you just slandered the earth. By not saying this. That, that's good. Well, Trump threatens uh, all kinds of uh, libel suits all the time. Maybe we should. You know, uh, uh, a friend of mine wrote a really interesting book about global warming uh, and the brain called Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Aren't Wired for Climate Change. Uh, uh, and this is a really interesting book. And, you know, it's true. This is a tough issue to communicate. People can't see it. 
They can't smell it. It appears to be in the distant future. It doesn't trip the normal cortisol, uh, stress, uh, uh, flight and fright responses that we were evolved with. But I think we could do a much better job of tripping those emotions uh, uh, than we do. Like, for example, in this book, Don't Even Think About It, uh, the author George Marshall, he talks about that, um, let's say that it was announced today that the CIA has discovered that the North Korean government is pumping a dangerous gas in the atmosphere and it's raising global temperatures and sea levels. People would say, go nuke those people, take them out. And you'd say, ha ha, climate change. But you don't respond to it the same way. Or scientists have discovered that a giant asteroid is headed for the Earth and it's bigger than the ones that wiped out the dinosaurs and it's gonna hit the Earth in 10 years. And the public's reaction to that would be, get those missiles up there tomorrow, don't you dare wait 10 years and knock that thing off course. And you'd say, ha ha, it's climate change. So we could do a much better job of this, but until the community of activists and scientists decide to make a priority of this communications and spend money on it, we're going to keep losing. So finding a way, what I see both of you saying, finding a way to make the systemic direct and constantly present. George, you would even recommend naming the storms after Trump or after oil companies to kind of apply Hurricane that, Exxon, that right? direct Hurricane correlation. Exxon, yes. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that the right wing tends to do. Look at uh, Trump and, and his nicknames, right? Everything gets right. a nickname and it sticks and the media repeats it. So part of the problem is the media, but part of the problem is that nobody's organizing to make sure these things get to quote Cambridge Analytica, injected into the bloodstream. That's right. There's nobody doing it at scale. There's a lot of great efforts, but they're dispersed, they're small, they're not at the scale needed. You know, um, and there's another problem here, which is this, uh, 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 there's a shutdown problem, an emotional shutdown problem. If you tell people that the apocalypse is coming, a lot of times people don't want to hear that, so mm -hmm. they shut down. So you have to find the balance in exciting people about all the great potential that goes with solving this problem and how solvable it truly is and all the benefits to them of solving it, which are many. And then you can talk about, in that context, and by the way, we better hurry up because if we don't do these things, transform the energy system, we won't survive. So why wouldn't we do this? So you have to have an optimistic uh, message with some fear in it. The, the environmental groups often, fear is the only message, and even worse, I think, sacrifice is the only message. And sacrifice does not sell. And in the main, you know, we can have electric cars and biofuel airplanes, and we do not have to uh, stop heating our homes or end the era of flush toilets in order to solve climate change. So uh, there's plenty that can be done, and it'll mostly lower the cost of energy. It could be very profitable. It'll put the whole country to work, but we don't talk about that either very well. George, what's the right balance between hope and fear on this issue? Hope is crucial. I mean, the idea of fear can motivate hope, and that's the point. Mm. You need to have fear motivating hope, when the, when, and you have to say hope is right there, and here's how you do it, right? And that's what David is suggesting, you know? But it takes commitment. It takes financial commitment from 
uh, large organizations that spend uh, you know less than one percent of their budget on actually getting these these messages out there. It takes um, uh, agreement among environmental organizations uh, to say, look, we have to stop this now and spend our money on in this way uh, rather than going after uh, our, our own individual uh, uh, concerns. I mean, you don't get a general uh, agreement on how to do this, even from environmental organizations. Yeah, it's just, it's just not a focus of the community. And, and if there's any message to come out of this podcast, and it is, that is what we can and must change. We can't leave the uh, verbal uh, uh, image, language, communications playing field only to our enemies. And we need to face the fact that we are really fighting with the one and a half arms tied behind our back. And there's just no reason for that. It's time to change. We have very little time left. You know, Christiana Figueres, who ran the Paris Climate Talks, and is you know such an incredible uh, spokesperson and organizer on this issue. She's formed a new organization called Mission 2020. And what Mission 2020 is is that if the world doesn't start making large emission reductions, much larger than what was agreed to in Paris every year, starting in 2020. 3% a year, we will not make it. We will not prevent these feedback loops from releasing all the methane into the atmosphere from the Arctic and under the ocean. And she has on her website this amazing statement from the a trade association for the global insurance company, which is, if we don't hurry up and keep temperatures uh, from rising more than 2 degrees centigrade, uh, the world will no longer be insurable there'll be no insurance available. So that's really good for business. So, <laughs> but, you know, you only find this kind of information on obscure websites, not in popular culture. Now, this is another issue. You know, I had the great privilege in my career working with Carl Sagan. And Carl was an amazing scientist, but he also understood how to talk to the public in ways most scientists don't. So, we lack a Carl Sagan, uh, a Sea of Recoup of climate change right now. We don't have enough well-known spokespeople. You know, Al Gore has done terrific things on this issue, but if you only have one well-known spokesperson for something of this magnitude, you've lost. So, for example, there's a great potential Carl Sagan of climate change. Her name is Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, H-A-Y-H-O-E. She's a Christian evangelical climate scientist at Texas Tech. And she makes great videos, but no one, there's no infrastructure to help her reach the public. She could be great. And there's a number of people like this. I've, so, I've actually seen those videos. They are great. So we don't have a Carl Sagan, Catherine Hayhoe may be one, but we do have an Arnold Schwarzenegger. And this week, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Republican, former California governor, megastar, uh, announced that he's going to sue major oil corporations for first-degree murder for what climate change is doing to the planet because of their product. Bravo. George, what do you think about that framing? I think it's an excellent idea. There's a court, a court suit uh, right now. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle had a story today on uh, a suit in San Francisco uh, before a judge saying that the oil companies are responsible for sea level rise, and uh, they should be paying for a seawall. Yeah. Right? Uh, around the San Francisco waterfront. Now, uh, the uh, nature of this is very strange. I don't know 
how that's going to work out. The judge said he was trying to, f to first to find out if they agreed on anything, like was it actually humanly caused, you know, and then if it was humanly caused, well, what about them? But uh, it's not clear what the judge is going to say and what the, this, how this lawsuit will go, but I think there should be lawsuits everywhere. And I think, and I think Schwarzenegger's lawsuit is a great one. It's a very, very important one. Can you imagine Rex Tillerson knew for decades that his business model and his products were going to swamp the coastal cities of the world? He knew that. That is the definition of war criminal, in my view. But we don't talk about it this way, and we allow the media to treat people like that with respect. Incredible. So this is another measure of how we don't galvanize the public. We are so meek about these things. So these lawsuits are very important. And uh, But you know, uh, what happens in the courtroom is not separate from public understanding and public opinion. Lawyers like to think it's separate, but it's not. Judges are influenced by public understanding, by metaphor, by language, by what's in the news, by what's not in the news. So to advance the legal situations, we also have to advance public knowledge. And by the way, the markets are not separate from public knowledge, metaphor, and understanding. So if you really want to speed up the transition to non-carbon energy, you have to help the public understand the urgency of this as well as the affordability of it. Now we'll go to some questions from listeners. George, this one is for you. It's from Lanai Vaz, who's a very big fan and always interacting with us on social media. Uh, Lanai says, we know progressives tend to value empathy and fairness, while conservatives value purity, authority, and in-group loyalty. Some studies have pointed to purity as having a greater positive effect for conservatives in terms of the environment, and perhaps the most effective to drive conservatives to make personal lifestyle changes to address the issue. So her question is, if the goal is to gain more support to fight global warming, shouldn't the framing include the moral view of pure air and the impurity of destroying our national our natural resources? Absolutely. I've uh, suggested we need to talk about dirty air mm. and dirty water, filthy water, you know, polluted uh, and pollution in terms of dirt and filth, because metaphorically they are um, evil. That's something I've noticed, too, here in California in campaigns that I've worked on. Uh, Making it an issue about people's health, about their water, about the air they breathe, about their children's lungs, about asthma rates, uh, has a way of bringing people to the table as active citizens in a way that talking about the atmosphere and the climate would not. But if you're getting people to activate around pieces of policy that are addressing the climate issue through the lens of how it affects people directly, that is uh, something that I've seen be effective. There's a reason for that. Uh the word environment means something outside of you. That's a disaster. Yeah. You know, global warming has to do with what's inside of you. It has to do with, you know, climate disasters, with whether you're going to have food, with whether you're going to eat fish, whether there'll be fish to eat. You know, uh, it has to do with all sorts of things. Pollution gets inside of you. Uh, and this is crucial. You need to understand this as something that is inside of you. Uh, and, you know, until you do, you're not going to get that. That's why this, the, your suggestion works. Yeah, I would also say I, I don't think we should use the word environment 
because as you said, uh, what that signals to most Americans is that you're concerned about something other than their concerns. You know, they're, they're concerned living the paycheck to paycheck, putting food on the table, taking care of their kids, getting them picked up at school at time, you know, paying their mortgage environment. What's that? Now, so I'm not sure empirically what we should call it, but I would posit that if we called it survival, it would get a lot more attention because it is survival. Seems like a popular concept to survive, <laughs> to survive. But one more thing about um, environment. The people who do uh, surveys on this, the pollsters, ask, you know, what are your 10 most important issues? And the environment is always, you know, 25 or something like that. And, but they list it as environment, right. not, uh, you know, uh, family survival. Right. Like another thing I tell people we work with is, you know, by and large, don't talk about the earth and the planet. You know, that doesn't relate to people. And by the way, while there will be a lot of species lost, the planet will actually be fine in geologic time. We just won't be here. The planet will recover. What this is about is us. Another question from a, a listener. This question is from Cheryl Willer. What is the best question to ask a climate change denier to shake them from their dogmatic slumber? David. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I tend to start with um, uh, why do you have a difficult time accepting that these gases are keeping more heat on Earth? This is pretty simple basic physics we've known since the early 1800s. What about that uh, gives you trouble? What question would you ask somebody, George, if you wanted to open their mind on this? Uh, I would ask... Uh uh, why do you think that we have had so many hundred-year floods and hundred-year fires uh, in the in the last decade? You know, uh, why you know why do you think all these disasters are happening now uh, at a much greater rate and at um, you know uh, a much greater ferocity? Uh, you know, do you can you explain uh, the statistics behind this? You know, the, the statistics are that uh, while 70% of the American public agree that the climate is changing, only 52% of them thinks it's humans, and only 20% think it's urgent. So if we got that 20% number to double, I think we'd be a lot further along, and I think we could do that. Our next question here is from Brian R. Smith, and he's got a question for you, David. Uh, David has emphasized the need for disparate climate communications and advocacy efforts to become a more unified, coordinated national undertaking. Is the Paul Revere Project perhaps looking at how to give structure and voice to a more coordinated climate environment movement? And why haven't collaborations so far been more effective? Well, uh, you know, George talked before a little bit about uh, why there isn't uh, part of why there's not enough collaboration. Um, you know, everybody... Um, uh, is locked into a system where they have to look out for their own fundraising and their own identity. And that's understandable to a large extent. You know, uh, I helped an, or an organization come into being called Climate Nexus, which is basically a nonprofit PR firm for the climate to work with journalists. And I, I, try, I had to convince funders that uh, it was needed that, you know, if you're the communications director for an environmental group, understandably, you're judged first by whether you get attention for the organization. 
And it's a different role to be judged by whether you've helped change the narrative of an issue. So we formed this group, and that's what they're judged by, and they do a very good job. So creating that kind of coordination really is difficult. On the other hand, I've seen efforts where if a few groups band together and try something new and they start to succeed, everybody else gets on board. So that's what I hope to see happen. Social proof. Uh, George, any any last thoughts on this issue? Obviously, we can't take care of this entire issue in one episode, and I think we'll have many more in the future on this topic. But um, looking out there today, what, what would you want to leave people with as a thought? I would change the journalism schools. Uh, I've occasionally taught at the UC Berkeley Journalism School, given the lecture on the sort of things we talked about today. And uh, the first thing I do is point out that there is no neutral language, that language is fits frames, that you're always framing no matter what you say. And this goes against what is taught. They are taught that language is neutral, that it just fits the world, and they're supposed to say who, what, when, why, and they're not supposed to be uh, say anything uh, that is prejudiced politically on one side or the other. They have to be fair and balanced. If they say one thing, they have to have the opposite view he on. Said, and said. He said, she said, and you know, and then you get these CNN rounds where people just argue against each other and fight, you know, and uh, it doesn't go anywhere. And the reporters and the, the people who do the weathermen don't go out and say what's really happening. Well, they're afraid of the partisan temperature of this, which, as I said before, I think we could bring down very consciously just by guaranteeing that Republican climate spokespeople have a lot of visibility. Right now, you only see Democrats talking about it. So, of course, we're not uh, uh, lowering the partisan temperature on it. You know, I agree with you about journalism school, but sadly, we're past the days when journalism is enough to solve this problem. You know, I remember when I started Fenton in 1982, in a way, the job was really easy. If I got a client on two of the three network news programs, it's at uh, 6.30, uh, half the country knew about what I was talking about because they had huge audiences and they were the only game in town. So now with the media so fractured and the audience is so reduced and everybody online, I'm afraid that one of the big paradigm shifts we have to uh, look at is that you can't create enough visibility and repetition for an issue just with free media coverage anymore. You have to buy it if you want to have enough reach and repetition. And that's not something our community likes to hear because, again, that's that dirty selling advertising stuff that we've all been trained against. David, I have a question for you. Uh, a lot of advertisers use market segmentation which, of course, was what was used by Cambridge Analytica right. in a very strong way. But its market seg segmentation is out there, and it's done all the time. And micro-targeting. And micro-targeting. Do you think that uh, that would be uh, effective or a good idea? Yes, absolutely. I mean, as I said before, the fact that we're not ensuring that Republican climate spokespeople are entering regularly into the social media feeds of Republicans, that's a tragedy. You know, we're ensuring rigidity when we could do something about it. So micro-targeting is essential, and, and it's a great tool because you can prove very quickly what works. And once you have proof of it, you can scale it confidently. We're not doing it. 
So will more money be spent to destroy the world than to save it? That's a big question. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to leave it there for this week. David, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Let nice us know when you're back. And okay. we'll have you on again.